Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. I'm Tara McBride. This month, my colleague Robbie Bristow and I teamed up for the first time to interview a very special guest. As a bit of background, Robbie and I are kind of obsessed with all things marketing. And the first time we met, we fangirled over Rebecca Auerhan, founder and chief marketing officer of 401k Marketing. Rebecca is smart, friendly, vivacious. She's like a magnet. You just cannot help but be drawn to her. This interview was personally very exciting for both me and Robbie, as we got to know Rebecca even more. She's been geeking out over financial services before she even hit kindergarten. Her passion for this industry and the work she does shines so bright during this interview. We're thrilled to feature Rebecca this month. So without further ado, here's this month's A Little Louder Now episode with Rebecca Auerhan. You know, why that would lead you to the, the 401k world. But can you kind of give us a little bit of a run through of, of how you got started and, and where things led to get you to 401k marketing in 2014? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so I guess to start this question, you know, how'd you get into the financial services industry? I got to take you guys way back. Um, my dad has been obsessed with the stock market since he was a shoeshine boy and the um, the newspaper only had a small little tiny column, maybe 50 stocks total, the entire United States stock market had like 50 stocks. And he bestilled that curiosity in me. So when I was a little kid, I mean like peanut size, my parents would put me in front of the, I don't know if you guys remember this, it's a very dated reference, um, the nightly business report on PBS. Mm-hmm. My childhood was not, not it wasn't, it was, I had cartoons, <laughs> don't get me wrong. What an exciting time to be young, PBS <laughs> nightly business report. <laughs> yeah. My dad was like, we're going to learn about pork rinds tonight. And so we then talk about like pork rinds and the cost of gold and silver. And he constantly was really asking me these questions. And I'm like four at this time. I'm like, I don't know what treasuries are or interest rates. But he talked to me like I was, you know, a, a little adult and Tell me about that. And our um, our uh, house is littered with prospectuses. If you ever want a good bedtime story, by the way, read your child a prospectus. <laughs> Guaranteed to knock you out. Uh, and so when I turned about eight, my dad was like, "All right, all right. So you know, we've got the fundamentals in you. We feel like you kind of understand what we're doing here. Ticker tape." And I'm like, "Yeah, sure. I'm eight. <laughs> Sounds like a great plan." So he says, "We want you to pick a stock that you you want to invest in." And as you know, an eight year old girl, I'm obsessed with Barbies. And so I say, so my dad then teaches me that Barbie is owned by a company named Mattel. They actually have a range of different toys that they make. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, if we invest in this stock and the stock goes up, can I buy more toys? And my dad was like, yeah, that's exactly how this works. And so when I turned eight, uh, we, we as a family, you know, he put me on the phone with our stock broker, true story, um, at uh, Smith and Barney. And had I, and I said, I would like, you know, I think it was like 100 shares of Mattel, please. And that's how I really entered uh, the financial services world way back then. Wow. 
so that might be the most innocent story of a kid becoming addicted to capitalism that I've ever heard. <laughs> well, you know, can you buy more toys? That's the for the question, right? <laughs> Not pure. Play on tray. Yeah. All right. So bedtime prospectuses. This sounds like it's a loving story, but out of context. It could be a sad story. So I'm glad that this was like born of a positive experience, the bedtime prospectuses. <laughs> um, <laughs> so with that, so, okay. So you are inundated with the world of financial analysis at an early age. And so you have a taste for, you know, what really, you know, the stock market's about and, and, and trading investments and, you know, the, the nuances of prospectuses. So, so where does that curiosity take you as, you know, you're heading to college and, and as you're graduating and, and, you know, looking for your first job? Um, so this is another weird story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a, must've been like a freshman in college and um, in the newspaper, I saw an advertisement for a summer internship program with American Express. So we're talking pre-Ameriprise days. And um, I wanted to be an advisor. That was like my goal. I wanted to become post-college financial advisor. And so I look at this mag, this um, newspaper clipping, and I'm like, okay, this is what I want to do. So I call my mom, and I'm like, hey, mom, um, there's a um, orientation, an interview orientation, um, about 45 minutes from where I'm going to college. What do you think about if you drive up, because I don't have a car, but you drive up and then um, you drive me to this thing, orientation, and then we go get lunch. And so my mom's like, yeah, okay, sounds great. So she drives up and then we get to the orientation. Now, keep in mind, I'm like 18 years old. Um newspaper clipping, walking into an auditorium style, very professional building, American Express. And my mom is like, well, how long is this thing going to take? I'm like, I have no idea, maybe like an hour. And she's like, well, I'm not waiting in the car for an hour. So I brought my mom with me. And she sat back in the auditorium with me. And the guy who's like the speaker is walking through like, this is what it's like to be a financial advisor with American Express. And we help families and help people save and colleging and budgeting. And I'm like, wide eyed. I'm like, oh, this is great. I love this. So I approach the speaker afterwards and I'm like, hi, Rebecca. You know, I really appreciate what you have to say. You know, how do I sign up? And the guy looks at me and kind of like turns his head and just like, or does one of these like double takes. He's like, how old are you? <laughs> like I'm 18 and I'm here and he's like okay well we don't know if that's actually legal for you to be an intern like you're 18 and he's like and who's this other woman with you I'm like oh it's my mom <laughs> we're gonna have her sit in the car for the hour so I brought her in <laughs> and the guy's like yeah like you're sitting there thinking me. like you're thinking this is like a reasonable thing my mother is here she's not gonna sit outside in the car I have a newspaper and I need an internship what else do you need to hear from me, sir? <laughs> exactly. So that was my like second kind of entree to financial services. Um, <laughs> did not get the job, by the way. Uh, I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, I thought you would have thought you were super ambitious, and you know, it's it was an internship, right? Or was yeah. it? 
Yeah. Yep. So I mean, look at how ambitious this young woman is. She's coming in all confident and ready to do it. Yeah. Well, they're lost. Yeah, they're lost. Okay. <laughs> Um, so after um, after graduating college, or I guess uh, the last year of college, I worked at Fidelity in the research and analysis team. Um, <clears throat> did that for about a year. It was a really cool experience. Um, I was in this great powerhouse group of people, and uh, there was about seven of us when I started. And then about two months later, just by natural accords, um, every person in that department had uh, pursued another career opportunity. Basically, all just got promoted, at, and a lot of them promoted out of Fidelity. And so this awesome group of seven of us, all of a sudden, the entire workload fell on my plate. I think I'm 21 or 22 at the time. And so I'm running Barron surveys. I'm coordinating with Boston Research Group. Um, I'm running an internal program for Fidelity. It's got all these really complicated facts and statistics, super over my head. Never have a 22-year-old doing all of these things, uh, but it was such an awesome learning opportunity, and it was it just expanded my mind so much and what's available, what are some of the possibilities. Um, so that was a cool experience with Fidelity, and then I became an advisor with Northwestern Mutual, and uh, my mentor uh, was a plan advisor. And so one day he was like, "Hey, here's an Excel spreadsheet of Form 5500 plan administrators and some phone numbers. You know, call them up." And so I started to call him up and floundered my way, floundered my way through cold calling. I used to call them form 5,500s. Now that's a bit of an insider joke, I think. Now anyone in this industry is going to get that. But I don't know. I kind of like that. So you were cold calling like that, which I think is – I think it's still a thing, I think, in a lot of industries these days, but it's an art form that not many people ever really get the mastery of. Now, would you say that you got good at cold calling off of form 5,500? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm actually right now finishing an article about that. <clears throat> so at Northwestern, the requirement was uh, 40 dials a day. And so I did 40 dials a day. And Robbie, Tara, I was almost hoping that people did not answer because it was embarrassing. It was intimidating. You know, you're, you're kind of, you're stumbling all over your words. And so I literally just 40 dollars, done, 40 dollars. Okay, see you later, <laughs> bye. Well, as you guys know, in financial services, it's for the most part a commission only job. So if you don't have an opportunity to set appointments, <laughs> and then if you don't set appointments, then you can't meet with people. And if you can't meet with people, I think you know where I'm going here, um, especially if you want to eat. That's not going to last that long. Mm-hmm. So that was um, that was the experience. And I did it for two years, and I actually really enjoyed it, but I, I, was, um, I was really young. You know, if you're in your early 20s, I think I was like 20 under uh, 23-ish, 24-ish. Um, and if you're giving financial advice to, let's say, a, a family of three, and, you know, you're 23 years old, and your biggest expense is, you know, rent and, you know, how many uh, cheeseburgers and beers do I want to have this weekend? And their financial picture is, you know, we've got 
you know, two working parents, we've got three kids, we're trying to juggle a mortgage and 529 plans and life insurance, and they have a totally different perspective on their financial planning goals. And I just, I was too young, too green um, to, uh, to be able to provide that advice. And so I kind of just said, um, humbly, like, I'm, I'm not ready yet. And I need to go get some more life experience. Uh, I'll be back, but I need to go get some more life experience. And that was the the reason why I left Northwestern was I just felt that I couldn't give the proper advice to, or I guess the word would be education, couldn't give the proper education to those clients um, that actually would, uh, would meet or satisfy their needs. That's a really mature, no, um, a, a mature outlook for such a young age to be able to recognize that, Hey, I need more life experience in order to relate and and help somebody else, I think just in and of itself is a mature outlook from, from where you were coming from. I do have a question kind of going back a little bit on your experience leading up to that. So did you have anybody in your life, a friend or an acquaintance or anybody who was sort of in the same boat with you, whether it was in, you know, high school or college or kind of early in your career that had the same kind of passion about financial services that you did that you could kind of bounce ideas around with that because I just think of, you know, the people who I was growing up with around, you know, the time that you're talking about. And I couldn't imagine very many of them having that kind of a focus on financial services. So I'm just curious if you had anybody to connect with on that. I'd probably have to say my dad would be the only one. Mm-hmm. Who, um, and we still to this day, I mean, I call him all the time about business related things. Hey, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? And he gives great advice. So that, uh, yeah, I would definitely have to say my dad is is the one person who time and time again, I, I go back and ask, uh, you know, got all that experience. You might as well find out from your standpoint uh, over the years what your thoughts are. Yeah, that's great. I think both of my friends at that age were, you know, more interested in uh, um, going out, you know, dancing and uh, and having some fun. Well, I think in your, to your point, your 20s, you know, you're lucky if you've got, uh, you know, a liquid net worth of $200, right. <laughs> I think for most, most 20 year olds that are graduating from college. Um, and then to boot, you know, it's not that you're not capable of trying to come to understand, you know, what a 401k might mean to a family, but without the proper context. And I don't think that this stops everybody in this industry from pursuing, you know, giving advice. But I will say that, you know, to have the, you know, kind of the the thought that I can't really help these people and that is, you know, not an appropriate position for me to be in to try to coach, you know, a family of, of uh, three children with, you know, you know, multiple income streams and all kinds of goals for me to be able to try to coach them when I may not really get what a 401k is completely yet or what all concerns they might have. I think that's an impressive realization that, probably could have benefited a lot of people who maybe have just jumped into the, you know, advisory space or financial services space. Um, Cause I don't think that that sort of thought process is very common. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's um, <clears throat> something that we as an industry should talk about more and, and say, you know, experiences, you can learn as much as you can from, books and self-education, but experience is still experience. And I mean, just think back, I, um, 
I gave a talk at um, uh, a Women in Pensions conference, and um, one of the questions I asked was, uh, okay, everyone, uh, let's kind of rewind the clock here 10 years. So it's, it's 2000 and, uh, 2009. Uh, <clears throat> quick show of hands. Um, who here still lived, and this event took place in San Francisco, so I said, who lived in San Francisco 10 years ago? And like half the audience raised their hand. And then I said, uh, who here had the same job 10 years ago? And like one person raised their hand. And then I said, who here was married to the same spouse 10 years ago? And then you know, we kind of had a little chuckle about that one. <laughs> uh, but you know, you think about what 20-something-year-old you is versus 30-something, and then if you extrapolate out 40-something, we're going to have totally different perspectives on on where we are in life and, and what's the best. And I think that just comes with, you know, years and kind of mellowing out a little bit and um, uh, understanding more about who you are and the challenges that life presents at different stages. Yeah, because I'm I'm sure you still have friends. I have friends that just tell me that, yeah, my, my IRA, I just have everything in Amazon. And I'm like, you're a 30-year-old functioning adult. Well, I think functioning adult human. <laughs> and you've gone as you've put as much thought into your retirement strategy as you do like, you know, what you're going to eat for dinner tonight. And I think that for some, you know, that process to your point of finding that experience or, you know, being able to actually seek out the right information and learn what's going on. I think even in a, a world where you can jump on Google and find really good stuff out there from all kinds of different sources to educate yourself. I still think that you know, the knowledge gap, whether it be someone that's, you know, wanting to get into the financial services industry, or if it's just the average investor, I think that that's just a common challenge. I don't I don't know if it's, you know, unique to the person that wants to advise. I think that that challenge is unique, broadly, in, you know, the, you know, the, the normal US population of just abilities to better understand, you know, what is necessary to be thoughtful with your financial planning, or, or, you know, what things should be important. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so then, okay. So if you're, you know, you're on this journey, this educational journey, um, you know, to, to better acclimate yourself, let's say grow up a little bit, um, you know, where, where does that take you next? Well, actually, maybe we jump back for just a sec. Tara, you know, over the last 10 years, there's been, I believe you're a proud mama of two. Um, how has that changed the way you look at finance and, and, you know, maybe 10 years ago versus present day, Tara? Oh, well, that's a great question. And I was just actually sitting here thinking about my perspective on the world and my perspective on finances over the last 10 years. And, um, you know, certainly having a family changes things, getting married changes things. But even just, um, you know, the first time I worked with a financial advisor, it was just sort of an accident. Um, I was invited to a lunch that somebody had won because their business card had been pulled out of a fishbowl for an Ameriprise financial advisor, right? So like I go with 10 other people and he does his spiel. And I think I was 27 or 28 at the time. And I just had a checking account and a savings account in um, a credit union. And I was like, I need, I know that I need to do more here. There's something else I need to do. And so I reached out to him and said, yeah, I, I want you to, look at my stuff and tell me what I need to do differently. And then, you know, that at least felt, helped me feel like I was on the right path. And then that kind of bled over to my husband, you know, after we got married, 
he's the type of person who would keep all of his money where he can see it <laughs> if he could. Um, that just, he would prefer to have it like in a shoebox under the house, but he knew that he needed to be a little smarter with it. So, you know, I got him to get involved with a financial advisor as well. I really don't think that I still don't feel like I understand the nuances of, um, you know, managing money, managing my own money, despite the fact that I work in the industry and have worked with financial advisors for a long time. Um, I think that, um, it has helped me understand it better and understand the differences. You know, when I was working with the the advisor previously, I didn't understand the types of um, savings vehicles that he was putting me in. But when then I went to work for, um, you know, the the advisory firm that I worked with in Pittsburgh, and they did an assessment of um, our portfolio, I understood so much better you know, why the things that I was invested in might not have been the greatest choice. It's not like it was going to hurt me or anything like that, but um, it just helped me understand a little bit better that my money could do more for me if I had a different kind of a strategy. So, you know, I, I, and we certainly want to take care of our daughter. We also want her to have some skin in the game. So we are saving for her education, but we want her to understand the value of money. And so, we're not going to fund her entire education, but we're going to fund, you know, maybe half of it or something like that. And then every time we go someplace and she wants a new whatever, whatever squishy, soft, plushy thing it is that, that week that she wants, I say, okay, well, how much money do you have? And she has to tell me, okay, I have, you know, $15 and I can use that $15 to buy things. And then she'll go into the store and she'll see all these grand things. And I'll say, okay, but you only have $15 and that costs $21. You know, how much more money do you need to buy that thing? And just kind of getting her to understand that, you know, money is finite. You can't just pull out a card and have anything that you want anytime you want. Um, so I think that just having children alone um, starts to put a magnifying glass on all the things that you just kind of like let operate in the background because I don't want her to have... Um, a, a, a relationship with money that makes her uncomfortable. Um, I want her to feel comfortable talking about money and what she needs to do to save for her future way earlier than I did. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, family and um, marriage and just age in and of itself gives a lot of different perspective on, on how you approach money and, and the value of it. And, um, a, how hard you have to work for it, but B, how, how hard you have to work to keep it and um, help have it grow. Nice. Now, Tara, do you find, so you had this experience with, you know, this Ameriprise advisor um, who I'm assuming, you know, was a, a broker of some mm -hmm. sort. Um, now, so, meaning that you've you've had some experience with an advisor, and I think that so in in my personal experience, you know, I had a wealth of individuals growing up, um, you know, grandfathers, dads, uh, uncles that were all relatively financial savvy, and you know, kind of in the same way that Rebecca had someone that sort of spiked her, you know, piqued her curiosity about you know the world of of investments and financial services. Um, you know, I had a really easy path to asking questions and, and getting, you know, good advice um, that I thought was relevant 
to me and, you know, where my financial goals were. And, and that's changed uh, in the same way that I'm sure it has for both of you is, you know, um, got out of school, got married, buy a home, all your stuff starts to change. Um, but, you know, I think that because I've, I've heard this and I, I've watched this, the, the world of getting really good, honest, objective financial advice, I think, as a woman in in this industry, and it doesn't need to be for your 401k, it could be for any you know, financial goal that you're trying to achieve, I think is, is very difficult. Um, you know, where I think from, from, you know, even conversations I've had with my wife about how those conversations tend to go with financial advisors. Um, you know, she feels like it's sort of a, uh, I'm going to tell you what this is, is good for you. And I'm not going to explain why, and I don't really care what you think. Now, do you find that to be true? Or if you had a mixed experience with that, I'm, I'm curious what both of your takes are on the ability to get really good advice as a woman in a male-ish dominated financial services space. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can say that, thankfully, my experiences have been um, pretty good. Um, you know, I the, the advisor, and maybe it's because of the age of the advisors, I'm not sure, but um, everybody that I've worked with has been relatively young, more of a peer um, than, you know, an older, a, a different generation. So I feel like when I have met with my advisors over the last few years, um, you know, they look at me, they ask me direct questions about my goals and what I'm trying to achieve. And then they also ask us, you know, couples questions or family questions that, you know, are directed at both of us. So I've been very lucky in that regard, but I do know that, um, I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of women in particular, um, and then also I think just younger generations feel very uncomfortable about the conversation around money. It's just not something, you know, when I was growing up, it was not something that was directly discussed with me ever. Um, so I felt like I was really far behind when I became a working adult and I didn't really know how a 401k worked. And so when, when they were talking about, you know, when I worked at a company and they were talking about being vested and everybody was nodding along, I didn't feel comfortable raising my hand and saying, well, what does that mean to be vested? I don't understand what that is because nobody ever talked to me about it. So I think that you know, there's, there's an age issue and a woman's issue and all wrapped up in this just because it is uncomfortable to talk about money because as soon as you introduce money into a conversation, there starts to become tiers or levels that people are at, right? Like you, you only work with certain advisors who would accept you at a certain level. Um, if you're not, you're, if your net worth isn't above $500,000, then you're not going to work with this advisor. You go to a different advisor. So it just, it starts to peel back some, I think, um, it, perceived or not, you know, social levels that are kind of uncomfortable for people to face. So am I at the right stage for my age? Am I saving enough? And people like, I mean, Robbie, you said something about how people spend more time thinking about their dinner. Well, that's something that we used to talk about at my old company that people spend more time planning a vacation than they do planning their for their, their 401k or their future finances. Um, and that's terrifying that that should that should not be the case. So I think that we need to involve women more in the conversation earlier and taking away the stigma of talking about money way sooner. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe there was something to a home economics class, like the actual economics, not, you know, cooking or cleaning or sewing, but the actual economics of running a household 
there's something to that that we don't have anymore. I couldn't agree more with you. That's so true. People, you know, if you ever want to make someone really uncomfortable, just start talking about money mm-hmm. immediately. And I think women specifically clam up even more because we were, you know, we were taught these are, this is an impolite conversation. Exactly. You got you to gotta change that. Um, so uh, let me share a quick, this is kind of a messed up story, but I'll share it with you. I'd love to yeah. hear it. <laughs> but it's nothing. It's reveal it all. <laughs> so uh, one of my friends, uh, uh, she was sharing how, um, again, this is really messed up, but um, it's an unspoken, and this is not, this is generality. This might be completely false, but I'm just going to share with you what she shared with me. Um, it's an unspoken in HR, in human resources department, that when there's a job position opening and um, if there's a male and there's a female who are going for the same open position, the HR person will low, will, they'll say, okay, our, just for math's sake, we'll say that the, the position is $75,000 for math's sake. And they'll say, okay, the woman will come in and she'll say $75,000. Now the man will come in and he'll say 90000 And the HR person, kind of looking at the two candidates, will say, okay, my budget for this position total is again to say it's just 100 and i think i'm getting too complicated in the math but the point of the story is that the woman will never negotiate her salary the hr person will say okay well we're going to pay you this thousand per year and the woman will say okay thanks and the man will say okay well we're going to pay you x thousand per year and every single time the hr person the man will push back and say i want more Mm-hmm. And the, so the person who's running HR from a budgeting standpoint, they kind of teeter back and forth and say, okay, I know what our internal metrics are and what we can spend on this full-time employee. And so they lowball the woman and they know that the man's going to counter. So that way they'll always pay. So that way they most of the time pay them more women. When it comes to salary negotiations, we do not negotiate. Mm-hmm. And that was, and I've heard this story from a, quite a few people who I know who work in HR and they look at me and they go, yeah, yeah, that's not true. But now that you say it out loud, it's really messed up. Mm -hmm. And most of the women, most of the people in HR are women. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's really messed up. So one takeaway is if you are a female and you are um, negotiating for a job, counter it with something more. And most of the time uh, you'll be you'll do it. I I've, actually, I'll ask uh, Robbie and Tara. Um, I've never personally countered when I got a salary offer. Have either of you ever, ever countered offered that? I'll let Robbie answer first. <laughs> yeah, I, I have, and not to be, you know, a favorable statistic for your story, <laughs> but um, I have, and I think, so I've, I've read a few studies. Um, there was one from 2017 who's, you know, the, the research group, I can't remember. They were talking about uh, that men and women in the financial services space. Now, I don't count myself in that bucket necessarily, since you know we're technically you know a technology company, and that's where I've 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 always worked. But you know, in the four hundred one k space, and so it's about a fifty fifty makeup between men and women in this industry, which I think is you know probably surprising for some people. That you know the initial opportunity is pretty good, but then the uh, the, the seeking of a promotion 
is where all of a sudden things get really screwed up and women, you know, disproportionately don't get their next promotion, you know, to a manager or whatever the next role is in their company. And men, you know, while facing the same, let's say, sets of challenges, you know, trying to get a promotion, um, generally are, are more successful. And so then that creates a sort of domino effect that, you know, further up the totem pole at your company, you have more men and less women. So not only do women face a challenge with seeking their next promotion and going through that negotiation process, they also lack female role models and advocates at senior levels within their companies, all the way up to the executive level, who are championing making sure that women are getting promoted. And so, you know, it's it's kind of this double-edged sword of, you know, women are struggling in the negotiation process of, of getting raises and promotions as much as because there aren't any, you know, significant percentages of women in the companies in senior roles, they also are not receiving any sort of a, a role model that they might need to encourage them or even just simply women advocating for more women to get higher uh, promotions in their companies because, again, statistically – men do not advocate in that same way that women do for themselves, which I think is a, another significant factor. So that's a long winded way to say that, you know, I myself, I, I think have had, you know, good success in my career with getting promotions as well as in salary negotiations, taking the first offer. And this is something I think, you know, I've probably heard echoed from, from other people in my life, but I, you know, recall my own grandfather. It's like, you never take the first offer. And that's a mentality that, you know, gets, I think, put into at least in our, maybe my generation, you know, I'm, I'm 31. At an early age, from my older generation, my, my parents and grandparents, it was like, you are strong, and you will get what you deserve. And you're going to go ask for it. And you're not going to take no as an answer. And I think that that's an important factor potentially and you know why men have this unearned sense of you know uh deserving of all things that potentially might be a catalyst for it that you know lines up well with that study but so that that's my personal experience and also i think context for you know potentially why you know that that sort of uh process for myself was true was just because i've always had people behind me saying, go get it, go for it. You don't take the first offer, you get what you want. Um, and, you know, the the last thing I'll say, I remember talking about weird stories. I haven't shared one myself yet. So it's like 2002 and I'm at Taco Bell with my dad and I went in to go get food for us and I had ordered a large like Pepsi or Coke or something. And I come out and I'm kind of destitute because I didn't get my Coke cup. And I just kind of accepted that as the outcome of my order, even though I, I paid for it. And I remember this and I quote it all the time. My dad just looked at me and said, if you ordered a large Coke, go get your large Coke. And I've internalized that probably far beyond what he had <laughs> intended, you know, at the time to take that as a mentality for getting what you want in life when you have earned it or you deserve it. And, you know, I think that that's, again, just an important mentality that I don't think, you know, from my, my experiences talking to women now, obviously I can't empathize. I can sympathize that that sort of mentality is not uh, instilled in young women as much. And I don't know if that's changing because I, I don't have children. So, you know, maybe Tara can speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so uh, but I think that's an important factor. For sure. And, and I can say that, um, 
me negotiating my salary is a very new thing. I, I definitely fell into this, you know, the general statistic of women, you are offered a, a certain amount of money and you say, you know, thank you very much. I'm going to go off to my little hole and I'll do all the work you want me to do for that salary. That sounds great. Um, I, I think that it is shifting, albeit slowly, um, because, you know, we have access to more information and more stories like this. And, um, you know, I, I do have to point out that it's not that long ago that women were um, still not accepted as um, executives or professionals. Are either of you watching Stranger Things or have watched Stranger Things season three? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> Nancy is embodying everything that like so many young women experienced in the 80s and the 90s, you know, that where it's you, you're not taken seriously simply because you're a woman. That's not that long ago. So, um, you know, I think it's just taking us a little bit of time to, you know, share stories and help people understand or help each other understand that if you don't ask, you don't get. And men have been groomed, generally speaking, just like, you know, you shared that story, Robbie, where it's like, you know, know your worth and demand what you're worth. And if they are not correct in what they've offered you, then you go back and you tell them what you think that that number should be instead. And most likely, you might not get that number, but you'll get a higher number than what they had started with. Um, so I just, I feel like women are starting to learn the power of making the ask. Um, and I know personally, I make sure to talk to any woman who is curious about salary negotiation and how to approach it, right? You don't just go in and say, I'd like more money. You go in and you say, this is what I want and here's why. And you come in with a, a very clear um, purpose and reasons backing up your request. Um, our uh, recent interview with my former colleague, Melissa Ritchie, you know, she, we specifically asked her, like, how do you go into a salary negotiation? Like, what does that look like? And so we talked a little bit about that. And I, I do think it's an important conversation to have. And I'm hoping that younger and younger women are hearing this message and understanding that, um, you know, they need to make the ask and they need to know their worth. Um, and if they don't, if they don't make that ask, then, you know, just as you had mentioned, Robbie, the dominoes start falling. And then when you incorporate you know, if you want to have a family, and we've had this conversation on this podcast before too, that starts to to shift things for women even more. Um, and you know, the impact on not just your current earning potential, but your future potential, your savings and your four hundred one k, all of that can be impacted if you take yourself out of the workforce. So there's just a lot that goes into it. And you know, I I certainly am talking to my daughter a lot about you know being being more aggressive or assertive, maybe aggressive is too harsh of a word, but being more assertive and understanding that the space that you take up is, is, you know, you own that and you should take up that space and not be apologetic for it and not make yourself smaller. I love that idea. Going back to your thoughts earlier, Tara, on the concept of a, um, a high school economics class where it's not about like baking and sewing. Like we, we can kind of move on from those things, yeah. but it's about like salary negotiations and building a resume and having challenging conversations, uh, you know, basic budgeting, spending versus savings, taxes, all the really important things that create financial lifestyle basics uh, for our future generations. Yeah. Well, I have to imagine that if people are more educated about 
you know, how to approach their finances, then we can protect ourselves against something like, you know, the Great Recession, <laughs> where, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. people were signing off on these things that, you know, they were being told, oh, you can afford that mortgage. And it was like, well, mm, you can't really actually afford that mortgage. But you don't know that because the person, quote unquote, the authority across the table shoving mm -hmm. the paper in front of you is saying that you can. Um, but I feel like if we have more conversations around that and being more open about it um, and educate younger, you know, high school age people yeah. that we we can be more empowered. And then the conversations around money aren't so intimidating because we've already had them. I remember um, my last semester in college. Now, I loved where I went to college. Great experience. But my very last semester in college I had to take this final course. It was a, a senior rounding course. And the very first thing that they did was give us a career personality assessment, career personality assessment. And the entire time I'm going, you don't think this would have been helpful? My freshman year? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> senior year, it's senior spring. And I'm taking this, this and I'm going, the whole time, you know, you're ebbing and you're flowing. You're like, what do I like? I don't know. You can never take at all the courses. So you never really get all the exposures. And I'm like, well, had I done this freshman year, you know, that would have been a lot easier, yeah. guys. <laughs> they want four more years yeah, the from you. Yeah. The, <laughs> the outcome where you're taking it and you're like, oh, man, I'm going to be bad at what I just spent $100,000 trying to get good at. Why did they give this to me? Yeah. You know, like... Mm -hmm. You take this test and it's like, okay, I'm going to be talking to people. I'm going to be a financial advisor. And, you know, you take the dumb test and it's like, hey, you're not great at talking to, with people. So, uh, sorry. Uh, we always offer more college here at the university. So. <laughs> I love it. So, so oh, go ahead, Robbie. I was go just going to say, I, uh, Rebecca, what is uh, like some of the best career advice that you've gotten? And, you know, particularly as a woman, what has resonated with you? What have you What have you used to help propel you forward? And what's some maybe if there's any advice that you got that you were like, "Ooh, I don't know if I would really do that again," or it just didn't resonate with you. So some of the best um, kind of life advice um, I've ever gotten. Um, it's I'm gonna try and explain it. It's uh, it's a little complicated, but. Uh, uh, we as human beings, uh, we live in three specific spheres. We have our financial sphere, our professional sphere, and our personal sphere. So three kind of evolving, overlapping, orbiting spheres. And at any point in your life, one of those spheres can be out of orbit. So for example, um, you've got, um, financial sphere. Okay. Like savings, good income is good. Um, working towards our goals, financial sphere is good. Professional sphere, you know, Hey, the boss is good. The team is good. Works good. I'm pretty happy. My professional sphere, thumbs up. Personal life. Well, let's say you got into an argument with your significant other. So that one sphere is like out of orbit. But at any point in time, you can have two spheres are in orbit and the third one can be out. And then the goal is to try and get all three spheres in this happy little ecosystem. Well, whenever you have two spheres 
that are out of orbit is when you start to enter chaos. It affects your mental ability. It affects how you're feeling, your emotions, and that comes across in various ways. And so what I've learned and what the advice I got was, if you ever feel like your, your spheres are out of orbit, and I do this to this day, get a piece of paper and make it into three columns. So draw three columns, the top of it, write financial, the next column, professional, next column, personal. And then whatever those things are, break them up into columns and then look at them. And then once you have the list, you can start to check off. Oh man, you know, I, I have that stupid DMV payment I keep forgetting about. Cross it off. And then you're like, all right, my financial sphere is now you know, healthy again. And then your professional sphere, you're like, oh, I have this big meeting, this work project, it's overwhelming. Oh, I just need to type the time for it. And then you go through and you work your way forward and you get your spheres back into the healthy ecosystem. And you're, you can literally feel the stress releasing from your body. So that was some career advice I got many years ago, at least 20 or 15 years ago. And I still use it to this day. And whenever things start to feel overwhelming, I get out that paper, I do my three columns, and I figure out and identify what specifically is causing that. And then how can I put everything back into orbit? I love that because I, I think that people um, forget the power of just the sort of that elementary exercise where you put down your thoughts or you put down what's going on, and then you can one by one, look at those things. You know, I, I did that. I, I do that whenever I'm feeling super overwhelmed. There was this one instance where I was planning this big event for the organization I was working for. Um, it's called Light Up Night. And it a it, hundred thousand people come into downtown Pittsburgh. And it was my first time experiencing the, the event. And the VP at the time, who was my boss, had moved on to a different position a, a few months before the event. So I was coming into work. I was basically working 12 to 14 hour days. And coming into work really early and leaving really late. And there was so much in my brain. And the only thing that really got me through that project was to write down all the things um, at the end of the day that I needed to make sure got done the next day. And that was the only way I could keep order. So I love this because it takes that little concept and puts it on a little bit of a grander scale and kind of speaks to the whole your whole life, not just a project. But I do feel like there's some some real value and kind of rolling back a little bit and saying, all right, let's simplify this. I need to see it in front of me and let me work through each item one at a time. That's just really fantastic advice. Can can thank my friend, Jim. He's the one who gave it to me many years ago. Shout out to Jim. Well done. <laughs> so one of the things, so go ahead, Robbie. <laughs> So I was going to say, um, you know, I think especially with someone like yourself, Rebecca, who's running a business, I don't know how often, you know, with, I'm sure with decreasing amounts of time, you know, even potentially the task of sitting down and writing things down can potentially, you know, be a matter of, of juggling opportunity costs. So, you know, you're, you're a founder of your own business. Uh, you're a, you're a female founder but you're a female founder in an industry that I think is sufficiently lacking, you know, leadership by women in a significant percentage in terms of, of business, business leadership, business ownership. Um, and I, I think about, you know, you, you tell me about this, this world of orbits and juggling things. And my first thought was, 
you know, I, I feel like I have those moments, but I'm not running my own company. And so I imagine that your uh, tasks of keeping, you know, your, your things in orbit is, is uniquely challenging. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of want to take that, that point in the direction of, you know, so you, you've started your own business. You, you guys have been running things for about five years now. Um, I've heard nothing but wonderful things from people, advisors that, that I work with about 401k marketing, but I was curious, you know, you know, what, you know, your, your, your life has been, you know, as a female founder, um, whether that be in this industry or not, you know, and, and what your, your challenges have been, um, with staying, you know, goal oriented and persevering. Cause it's challenging being a founder. It's challenging running a company no matter what, but I, I have to imagine that being a female founder, especially in this industry probably had some unique challenges or maybe not. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what that experience has been like for you. Well, it's definitely been the, the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, there's no, no doubt about that. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, year one of a business, uh, I don't have children, but I can only kind of think of it in terms of a child. You know, you're, you're starting this new thing and you're like, I have no idea what to do. And you have to learn everything all at once. I probably worked, I don't know, 80 to 100 hours that year one, uh, just trying to figure out how to keep the light bulbs on learning about learning about like coding and not only having a technical background in the retirement side, um, but learning about business administration, dealing with the state of California. Let me tell you, it's not fun. It's not a fun experience. Um, like all the paperwork that you have to go through. And when I hear folks talk about administrative challenges and, payroll and bookkeeping, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's another, sorry, our offices are on um, Broadway in downtown San Diego, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's totally fine. They found it. (laughs) Digs up, man. So yeah, the year one was just, you know, it was, and you're holding your breath the whole time. Like, you know, you have this great idea and this great concept, and it can genuinely help people and advance our industry. But you're also, you know, struggling. And in my life, you know, I was struggling with, um, you know, how do you balance a relationship and a business and friendships and all of that in one? By the way, it's impossible. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then, you know, year two, you're trying to figure out, okay, wow, we made it. Like, big sigh of relief. And then year two, and again, again, I can only kind of imagine it's similar to children. But year two is its own other hurdles that are unforeseen in year one. Um, and as you keep going, you keep learning and you keep adapting. Uh, but the, the first year is everything is new. The second year, you know, some of the things are new, but it's not as overwhelming. Third year, fourth year, you know, as we're, now we're in our fifth year, it's new challenges. Um, you approach them. And I think a lot of challenges with the right attitude on how you approach them, they actually turn into opportunities. So right now, as an example, um, I guess a couple of years ago, um, as an example, one of our teammates said, uh, we should start doing content marketing. Uh, and I said, okay, well, tell me more about this. And I asked a ton of questions and then we rolled out a whole content marketing suite. And then about a year and a half ago, another teammate said, we should do an entire uh, portion of our business dedicated to branding. 
I was like, all right, well, let's put together a business plan. Let's beta test it. Let's see how that goes. And now we're about to launch a, basically a third arm of our business. So we have branding, content, and speaking. And that's, if you would have asked me five years ago, like, hey, where do you see the future of 401k marketing? I never thought I'd be a public speaker ever. They used to terrify me. Now I love it. I get up there and I'm really excited and I just feel the energy of the crowd. Uh, and when it comes to branding, I always knew we loved branding but it's so personalized. So we had to really deconstruct the whole process of how to create quality branding and do it in a way that's going to deliver the best results for our clients. And that's been a really cool project to work on. And then the content side, you know, our world is changing. We started off part of this conversation about cold calling. No one cold calls anymore. Like, I mean, when was the last time you answered a phone call from a cold caller and you're just like, oh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> I think about that all the time. I screen every call I get. Like, you know, I and you know, tw- ten years ago, I don't think that was as much the case. I mean, cell phones been around for a while, but now it's like a phone rings, and my first thought is not answer, talk to person. It's who the hell is this? And if you don't recognize the number, now I don't know if you guys are like me. If you don't recognize the number, yep. I just don't answer it. I mean, that if is it's where important I'm at enough, now. they will leave a voicemail. <laughs> Absolutely. So here's my question to both of you. How many voicemails unlistened do you have on your phone right now? Zero. Oh, you're good. Um, I'll tell the you. The only reason I have zero is because they have the they transcribe the voicemails now. So I could see them right away and say, All right, that's just somebody calling me about refinancing my student loan delete. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's really helped me. Uh, I've got eleven. Eleven. <laughs> Now, now to Tara's point, they transcribe them. Now, my mother is a, a talkative lady, um, and she likes to, you know, if she doesn't catch me, she just kind of likes to to share uh, her her thoughts. And so, I've got a couple of three minute <laughs> voicemails that have all been transcribed, and they're always sweet, loving letters. I, I have a mother, you know, in my thirties that like tells me I'm still like the greatest thing that ever happened mm-hmm. to her, but. Be, you know, but I'm like even the same way. I'll just read it, you know, and I'll text her back or something. I try to answer it if my mom calls, but I just think that that, you know, just circling back to the earlier part of our discussion about cold calling. I mean, you think about now, it's like impossible to get someone to answer the phone, and and literally everyone's patience is so thin with that sort of stuff. You know, if it's like Tara said, someone's trying to refinance their student loans, it's like it takes a lot of your character to not just cuss out this stranger for calling True. you. <laughs> my husband makes I mean, what oh, sorry, my husband makes fun of me because um I I got a landline because I work from home sometimes now and uh yeah, I know. Wow. I know. He's like, "Why are you doing this?" And I said, "Because the calls are much clearer and when you're on a cell phone there's a weird delay, but you don't have that delay on the landline, but you look at our like the the voicemail, you know, the on the on the actual phone and we have like 21 un un unread or unlistened to voicemails from you know from anything it's like poli- during during election season it's the absolute worst we'll have you know 50 oh, unlistened no. voicemails from robocalls <laughs> coming soon well and i th- yeah and i think they have your cell phone numbers i'm sure i've you know donated 5 bucks to someone that then you know the political party of choice takes it and says, all right, sweet. We're going to call this guy a lot because he apparently has five bucks to spend. Maybe he's got six. You know, like, I, the cell phone life, I think, is still 
dealing with that same problem but um you know i, I the landline thing is probably what caught me the most off guard because i honestly i wouldn't even know who to go to today to get a landline like i don't even know who offers that service anymore it gets bundled with our internet and cable so well shout out shout right? out cable providers for keeping that alive as best as they can. <laughs> you'll you'll for, find me on for some, folks in rural yeah, areas you'll find and me Tara. on some phone booth on the street. <laughs> not not doing anything shady at all. <laughs> oh, you're gonna have your Rolodex next to you as well. <laughs> hey, that's a big deal. <laughs> I've been watching. Yeah, I've been watching uh, Breaking Bad for the first time, and it's two thousand. Oh, bless your heart! It's such a great uh, series. It is. And I feel like anytime I see someone, uh, like you said, like a phone booth or something, it's like, that's a drug deal. Like 95% sure. If there's a phone booth anywhere, it only exists for that purpose. I don't know what else it would exist for. Um, that's awesome. But it's like quick thought. Like I was like, you know, the, the landline thing is just like, yeah, like Breaking Bad, Walter White. Like that's just where my head's at right now. Um, so, so, uh, Rebecca, uh, you know, 401k marketing, you know, to just talk a little more business here for a second. So marketing for financial advisors is uh, something I'm sure you've been trying to correct for the last five years, if not, you know, before that, while you were at uh, LPL. Um, and your, you know, company's, you know, uh, offering, you know, we're talking branding, uh, speaking, you know, content strategy, you know, that's all stuff that, in this industry for most advisors and that's changing is kind of a confusing, scary thing to have to think about. And obviously thank goodness your company exists to help out with that. And I'm really curious, you have, you know, five years of, of running your business and working with advisors for many years before that, even as one yourself, as a, a as a uh, uh, working on the sales desk, you know, where do you see, advisors succeeding you know what improvements have you seen with marketing strategies and where do you think they're still really terrible um so this is a this is a kind of a layered and a little bit of a complex question uh the reason why is because if you think of the concept of financial services as an industry we're, we're actually not that old as an industry totally totally uh, in totality, that's the word I'm looking for. And <clears throat> years ago, people would, you know, hang a shingle, it's the old adage. And then people, they obviously had to cold call, they had to do marketing and do center of influence, but people didn't have the same expectations years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that they have today. At Tara, you mentioned, you know, how with, at the palm of our fingertips now, we have more information than ever in humanity. And that means that the client experience of financial services has to evolve to what modern society expects. And what's happening right now, or at least what we're seeing, is when the experience needs to be broken down step by step by step and perfected, literally perfected. Amazon is not the number one global company because they offer stuff online. You know, they perfected their process. And that's the same thing that we as an industry and a lot of the financial services and advisors, um, they're starting to put those pieces together. So what is the client experience before they become a client? So what does our website look like? Is it awesome? 
Or does it like, you know, I did it a couple years ago. It looks fine. No big deal. No one really looks at our website anyway. That is not true. That is not true at all. 86% of people Google you before they agree to meet with you. And I think that that's something that today is a little bit lost in translation. And then when someone submits, um, goes out and meets with that person, I mean, what are you bringing with you? Do you have, you know, I talk about this a lot in the speeches I give, but a yellow pad. You know, how are you communicating with a yellow pad that you understand technology? That you are um, that you have a list of resources at your fingertips. That you understand financial services as an industry. You understand investments. You understand. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole. But a yellow pad does not instill confidence in the person who you're talking to. So, what are your brochures like? What is your fact finders? Do you have a process? In our industry, we talk all the time about fiduciary process. What's your sales process? What's your marketing process? that's all on the pre side. And then when you actually onboard a client, you know, the moment that they sign paperwork, what's next? You know, do you, is there a thank you note? Is there um, an onboarding email? Is there a service calendar that clearly articulates, hey, this is how many times we're going to meet per year. So we're going to talk about this is why this is important. And, and then after that, you know, how are you maintaining those relationships and using content marketing to continue to educate and inform and to entertain your clients so that way they'll eventually become raving fans? So if you think of the arc of the client journey right now, and specifically in financial services, there's gaps. There's tons and tons and tons of gaps. And we as an industry need to start to take those literally take out each and every portion, identify it, dissect it, enhance it, improve it, perfect it. And that's what I think is going to be the future. And that's what we've seen over and over again. And then after our clients work with us, they're super duper happy. And they've kind of figured out from a sales process from point A to point, uh, from point from the starting line to the finish line and repeat around the track. Um, and that's been super cool to see and experience over and over time and time again with our clients. That's awesome. I, I think, you know, from my, my impression, you know, as I, you know, check out advisors websites, I think your your point around, you know, it's start to finish line, it's sort of a race, you just keep running. And I think that that's another yeah, evolution, you know, mm -hmm. you're right, you know, your marketing strategy is not a, you know, you started it, and you finished it. And now mm -hmm. your marketing strategy is done. It's something that needs to be a regular part of your business that constantly needs evolution and iteration, especially to figure out, you know, what's working and what's not, you know, that's a, a technology strategy of AB testing of, yeah. you know, and, and, and a marketing yeah. strategy, obviously, as well. But you know, does this work? Does this not work? What are, you know, and I think that that's another, you know, portion of that evolution that I continue to see more and more, you know, on LinkedIn and um, in, in blog posts and those sort of things where more advisors are embracing the fact that this is a continuous process of their business that needs just as much care as the product itself, you know, that they're offering to their market, whatever that might be. And really, sometimes it kind of, especially at conferences, um, we'll be, I'll be having these great conversations with groups of advisors who get it and it's and they'll talk about their website and retargeting campaigns and ads. And you're like clapping, mm -hmm. literally <laughs> clapping, like, yes. And then I'll turn around and I'm at another event and there'll be an advisor and he's got his, you know, arms folded. And then he's like, all my business is referral only. And I'm like, great. And certain people don't believe in marketing and that's okay. 
And so I'll get the, well, you need to convince me why I should do marketing. And I, I just say, no, you know, you either believe in the power of marketing or you don't. And it's your business, not my business, it's your business. So if your business is booming because of referrals, great. You're clearly doing something wonderful. By the way, marketing could probably boost it a little bit more, but whatever, you know, not, not my business. Um, <laughs> You're like, who am I? I just run a marketing company, no big deal. <laughs> And so I just love the, the certain people. I can I, I have tons of visuals in my head right now where they're like, you need to convince me why marketing. And I always just kind of like kind of take a step back and I'm like, you know, no, you either believe it or you don't. And I don't think you can, I don't, it's like the old adage of, you know, you can't lead a, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And uh, thankfully in our business, as we continue to evolve, more and more people believe in the power of marketing and they see it in their sales and in their revenue and literally in the core culture and foundation of their companies. Something changes when they've got a strong marketing message and they're unified and they just have this kind of eternal energy from it. And, you know, it's awesome. So that's what we try to work with our clients to create that and that good energy is what's going to help our industry in the long run be a uh, continue as a great industry. I'm so glad that we have you, yeah, <laughs> Rebecca, just because I, I mean, obviously, I'm coming from a marketing background. So I, I, you know, cheer you for everything that you're saying. I, I, I can't agree more. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, as time goes on, and as more and more people in the industry are exposed to really good marketing, and they start to recognize it for what it is, it will gain momentum with those sort of naysayers or the ones who say this is a referral business only. Um, I, I just find that in my recent uh, career experience that happens to be in the financial services industry, that a lot of people think they know marketing or they think they know what good creative looks like until they actually mm -hmm. see it. Um, you know, I, I've, I've redone several websites. I've, you know, revamped collateral. I've done rebranding campaigns and, and it's amazing when you see somebody's face, when you walk in and, and nothing has really been touched or, or the creative that they've received has, has been, you know, mediocre at best. And then you you present them with something that is top tier, mm -hmm. you know, fantastic five star marketing materials. They go, oh yes, this is what we've been mm -hmm. craving. This is we just didn't know. They couldn't quite put their finger on what was wrong. Um, and you know, I just I feel like the more and more that people are exposed to it, the better it'll get. And I I've. I've kind of been telling a lot of my creative friends that this is the industry that's like the best kept secret for creatives because the bar is kind of set really low. So you can, you can walk in and um, you can really do some exceptional work for people when you are a trained, you know, um, educated marketer creative. Um, there's lots of really awesome stuff that you can do here. As long as you're able to work with somebody that gives you the runway to go ahead and do it. Um, you know, it's, it's just really super powerful. And so I hope that you see more and more of a shift away from that. You know, this is a referral only industry too. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing really well, but you know what? I want to PR. I want to do better next year. And I have competitors that are other companies, but how about myself as a competitor? 
you know, going around that track, can I go around the track faster next time? Maybe marketing can help propel me there. Love it. Love it. Love it. I always tell um, our design team that when our clients receive our materials, I want them to be like a five-year-old kid on Christmas morning where they just can't wait and the excitement is just overwhelming and they, they open up the emails and they see their new materials and they're like, wow, you know, that, that just that giant eyes and giddy, unbridled giddiness. And I always tell my design team, that's what we want for our clients every single time they open our content. And I, I think our industry is going to change and I'm really excited about it. And it's going to be cool to be part of the journey yeah, together. This is a great time to be here, I think. Yeah. And I, I think that where, you know, like 401k marketing is there are industries that lack marketing professionals that are like tailored to the industry in which those companies exist. And that's, you know, I think a unique capability of, you know, your company, Rebecca, where, you know, you literally on your website, you talk about fiduciary, you know, which is a confusing dialogue, confusing, uh, you know, set of subject mastery that advisors at times still lack. So not only are you a strategic partner, you know, for these advisors in building their digital storefront, which I know is a tagline of yours that I've heard many times, and then, you know, the pipeline of creating content and, you know, what, what you can do to grow your business through a thoughtful marketing and, and branding strategy, uh, but that you can also assist in these really complicated areas of financial services like fiduciary subject matters that I think is just beyond unique. Uh, and, and that's a really, really special function of your business. And as a former customer of 401k marketing at my prior company at CFFM, we we utilized Rebecca kind of early. It was, I think, the second year um, in your company to assist us with some uh, white papers on one of our products. And, you know, Scott and I, our former CEO, I remember us sitting and talking during that process and thinking, man, you know how hard it is to find someone that understands the nuances of an RFP for a 401k plan and the fiduciary requirements that that, that uh, helps satisfy like we were mind blown. And, and that's just where I think advisors don't know how lucky they are that people like you, Tara and Rebecca are in this industry trying to undo what has been, you know, really old school referral marketing strategy, if you want to even call it that, into a opportunity to really 10x their businesses, get a bunch of new business, position themselves as a thought leader. Um, I just think this industry is very fortunate to have people like the both of you that are trying to help the sad gentlemen and women that are out there that cross their arms and say, I work on referrals only, <laughs> you know? Well, thank you, Robbie. That's very kind of you to say. So along those lines, Rebecca, you know, I think of um, a friend of mine always uses this phrase, diversity of thought, right? If you have diversity of thought in the room, then better ideas, more innovation will come from that. So in your opinion, um, what are some ways that you think that we could engage more, uh, like a more diverse group of people to become interested in financial services in all different aspects? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm talking about it from a marketing perspective, but how, how do we get more people looking at financial services, particularly women and people of color, to say, you know, that's a place where I, I need to explore. I need to, I, that's, that's something that interests me. 
So I, um, I recently read a book, kind of answer, you're gonna, it's about that question. Um, it's called uh, How to Work With and Lead People Not Like You. It's by a woman named um, Kelly McDonald. And the book, again, is How to Work With and Lead People Not Like You. It's a quick read. It's probably a couple hours tops, two or three hours tops. And uh, she calls out in there really simple things, but make you kind of go, oh, yeah. So one of the things she talks about is, um, so working lead people not like you. So if you think of who you are, and then if you think, well, what if, you know, you're a dog person? What if your teammates, you know, a dog person? What if your other teammates, a cat person? What if one of you has traveled to 20 countries? What if the other one of you has never left the state? So she calls out these really mundane, small little differences, but they act as windows to say, I never thought of that. And they're tiny things, like maybe one person lives in a multi-generational family. So you've got grandparents, the parents, and then the children. Another one is single and lives in a downtown and urban environment. And they're just these kind of ways to look at the diversity in your in your meetings, in your life, and in financial services, and say, how can we how can we look at all of these as strengths? And then how can we market and message together so that way we're being um, collaborative and comprehensive across the board. I, um, I just really thought that the way that she wrote this book called out such things that you can apply it across it to your question, how do we add more diversity in our industry? I think it's by understanding that there is diversity and then starting to, starting to figure out what, what are diverse, in air quotes, categories? And she does such an awesome job in that book, laying out things that are just seem so non-important, but they actually are really important. And that's going to help us transition our messaging. That's great. We'll make sure to add that book to our, um, our notes for the, for the podcast. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think that that speaks to, a, a, I think, an important thing that's going on just you know, socially in general is how important representation is and that seeing, you know, people of, of different, you know, uh, genders and, and races and, and different orientations, religious beliefs, you know, what kind of ice cream you like, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever, whoever you are, you want to see yourself, you know, it's, it's something that I think comes up a lot in television and movies, how, how important representation is. But I think it's really important in professional careers, you know, that, Walking in, if, if, you know, I'm sure both of you, Rebecca, you talked about this with your first internship, you know, you walk into a space where it's a, a bunch of white men that are running a business, it's kind of hard to see yourself there, uh, kind of hard to imagine your success in that company. And I know that that there's been an evolution in a lot of different companies and industries to account for that, but it's not completely across the board true. Um, and so I think that's another important point, you know, talking about trying to, you know, reach other uh, people who may want to get into this industry, whether it be marketing or technology or an advisor, you know, that we all consciously as companies work to be representative and, and be inclusive because that's important in other individuals who are not in the industry is seeing themselves as represented and believing that they have, you know, a place uh, in those companies and those industries. I remember um, Chris Rock, this is a super random reference, but Chris Rock, the comedian, said, um, 
uh, I never believed in racism until I put on a skin colored bandaid. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it still gets me to this day. <laughs> but that kind of a statement wow. is so powerful. I mean, think about how um how exciting it is for ballerinas of color to have ball- ballet shoes or point shoes in their skin color. That just, you know, why would anybody think of that if they weren't impacted by it? But it is a huge deal. Um, and, you know, to Robbie's point about, you know, seeing yourself in the industry, I think it happens on both sides of the table. It happens both with the advisors and the investors. If the investors are not seeing themselves represented in the advisors that are managing their money, I have to imagine that is a little bit um, intimidating to say, all right, I'm going to sit across the table from somebody who um, I might not have very much in common with. And I'm going to have, do I have to be okay with handing over my life savings to that person? So I just think that inclusion on both sides of the table is, is really important. Yeah. And go back to the, the Barbie uh, conversation from earlier, you know, if we're circling all the Bring way back, back to Robbie. the start of our discussion here, you know, <laughs> Barbie, we think about, you know, representation does a impeccably good job, I think, by, you know, today's social standards of there is a Barbie that looks like everyone. And, you know, I think from the surface, it can kind of come off as like, you know, I can, I can hear in my head why people would be like, well, why do we need that? And it's like, because it's important to see yourself you know, it's important to feel represented. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, sort of a, uh, a less significant example of that. But, you know, to Rebecca's earlier point of her attempt to jump into (laughs) capitalism with a brand like Mattel, they honestly have been relatively progressive in terms of their representation of different races and men and women. And I think that, you know, those little examples of that, if we think about uh, empowering the younger generation, young women, especially, you know, those sort of factors are significant in building up their belief that, you know, they, like we, we talked about, you know, trying to get through promotions or those sort of things. It starts at the beginning where you believe that, you know, you are uh, capable, that you are represented, that you deserve and belong to be somewhere where, you know, imposter syndrome pops up a lot for a lot of people. Um, And I think that something as simple as a Barbie is a perfect example of why that's important and how impactful that can be to someone's life, you know, years later. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Rebecca, uh, before we wrap up things today, uh, I did want to ask you, um, we're going to try to start doing this as a regular part of our podcast is, you know, is there a book or a couple of books uh, that, that you'd recommend anyone go read? Yeah, I would say, um, thanks again, by the way, so much for, for having me today. It's been a joy and a pleasure to have this conversation with you guys. And I uh, look forward to our continued you know, conversations in the future. So to wrap up, uh, one book that I recently finished is called The Reputation Economy by Michael Furtick. And it looks at the power of big data and predictive analytics and moving forward into the artificial intelligence and the AI side of our coming world and how so much of our reputations are going to be predicated on our our online, our digital, who we are. And that's something that's happening and is going to continue to evolve. And so when you once you understand kind of what's behind the minutia of that technology build, 
it really changes the way you think about our industry, you think about your digital reputation, and you think of how you can leverage the power of the internet to become known as the experienced, awesome person that we know that you are. The Reputation Economy by Michael Ferris. Awesome. Fantastic. So we'll we'll have that information in our podcast notes for everyone that's listening. So um, on behalf of the Bridge Initiative, Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation um, that has covered, I think, a very interesting uh, list of things in about an hour. So um, we look forward to uh, having you back on very soon. And, and thanks again. Thanks again. Thanks, thanks Rebecca. Very much. Thank you for spending your time with us. Again, this is A Little Louder Now by The Bridge Initiative. Thank you to Rebecca and Robbie for this great conversation. If you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join The Bridge Initiative community, email us at bridge at fi360.com. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.